Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T.org. I'm joined today by my co-host, Amber Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you, and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. And before we jump into t- today's show, I have a couple of uh uh, updates to share. Uh, first of all, our uh, new uh, issue, our August issue, is uh, rolling at the printer right now. The papers are coming off the presses and will be distributed around the city tomorrow. You can find the new issue of The Independent in our red and white uh, news boxes on street corners around the city, also in public libraries, laundromats, social movement centers, and other places we put the paper out. And also, another reminder, uh, this time next week, uh, next Tuesday, August 23rd, we will host a special two-hour election night edition of the Independent News Hour from 5 to 7 p.m. Again, that's next Tuesday, 5 to 7 p.m., a special two-hour election night edition of the Independent News Hour. Right, and the second round of Democratic Party primary elections will be held Tuesday, August 23rd. Congressional and state Senate seats are up for grabs across New York City region. We will speak with candidates, community leaders, pundits, and voters like you about who is best suited to represent New Yorkers for the next two years in Washington, D.C. and here in Albany. We're looking forward to that. But now we turn to today's show, which is also going to be a really good show in our first hour. We're going to speak with... Ariadna Phillips of the South Bronx Mutual Aid, uh, which is working closely with uh, the hundreds of mig- migrants that have been bused from New York, from Texas to New York City at the behest of uh, Texas's uh, governor. Uh, in in the second half of the show, we'll hear hear from State Assemblywoman Yulene New. She is carrying the progressive banner in a wide open race for New York's newly created 10th congressional district which encompasses lower Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn. Uh, the latest polls show new running second in a field of 15 candidates, trailing only Dan Goldman, a former federal prosecutor and heir to the Levi Strauss fortune. So we look forward to talking to her in the second half of the show. Right. And, and as John just said, um, Ariadna Phillips, who is here with us today and we'll go to in a moment, um, founder of South Bronx Mutual Aid, also involved in Ice Watch New York City Network, um, has been on the ground at bus stations around New York City as as migrants arrive, asylum-seeking migrants coming from the southern border of Texas, sent from Texan Governor Grave Abbott from Texan border towns, you know, just after they cross, Um uh, there's a lot of question as to people's willingness. People are calling this kidnapping. Um, there are now allegations that uh, migrants are asking to get off the bus before New York and the bus driver is refusing. So we'll have some questions about that. But Ariana has been on the ground um, assisting these people, helping them get resources, offering um, a little bit of welcome uh, amidst a, a pretty horrifying situation. So welcome Ariadna and we're going to um, go to a quick clip here first um, of um, someone who arrived, a man from Caracas, who wanted to remain unnamed but spoke with our reporter Ken Lopez on Wednesday. Three buses arrived on Wednesday to Port Authority, correct? We've, <laughs> I, I want to be careful about saying all of the buses and where they arrive, but I can say that We've had many days of multiple buses arriving. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been hundreds of people a week. I think is a fair estimate to give on on the scope of what's happening. 
Right. And I think it's been about 4,000 since May or so. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit more later. Let's go to this, this clip from this, this man who just arrived from Caracas, Venezuela. It's been 41 days since I left Caracas. I arrived in the Darien Gap jungle on approximately the 5th of June. I left from there five days later. We arrived at a shelter in Panama that same day we took a bus to the Costa Rican border. In Costa Rica, I slept in a hotel. I still had some money. Then I crossed the Nicaraguan border from Nicaragua to Honduras, from Honduras to Guatemala and Guatemala to Mexico. And I arrived at the Rio Grande on Saturday at two in the morning because the Mexican authorities make you walk. You can't take a bus. You can't take a taxi. So you have to walk. We walked about three and a half hours to arrive at the Rio Grande. And from there, we turned ourselves into Border Patrol. Right. And so that's where a lot of these people are coming from. And explain to us what you know, Ariadna, of what happens when they arrive at Border Patrol and then how they get up here and how people are uh, that they're coming here or not. Sure. You know, I want to be clear. Everything that I'm sharing is based off of the accounts that we've been shared on. So, you know, we we have a diversity of understandings of what that may involve. Um, But the things that we understand from what we're being told, you know, people are you know, held in, in migrant detention centers. And then there is some mechanism by which they are told that if they want to board a bus, they have to sign a piece of paper. Um, and the people that are telling them this are people that are armed and wearing military style camouflage. And they don't necessarily know what's on the piece of paper, but it's the form that has been circulating in press that is like a hold harmless form and claiming that the person is consenting to being bussed um, from Texas to, in this case, New York. Um, several people, I would say, probably dozens of people that we've spoken to in the last week, so they didn't know what they were signing. They didn't know what was going on. They just were told that if they wanted to get out of the detention center, that they needed to sign that piece of paper. So then, you know, they're loaded on the buses, and in many cases, they're also not aware of where the bus is heading to. So it sounds like this leads to a lot of fearful, you know, experiences for people because they're on a bus, they're not necessarily provided what we would consider to be adequate medical care. We've heard of numerous accounts of people being ill on buses and they did not have access to their medication that was, you know, like necessary for their conditions. Uh, or in some cases they were being given pills or medications and there was no explanation what that pill or medication was for. So, you know, again, we've had situations with diabetes, hypertension, 
um, and other, you know, necessary medications that were not given to them. And then other folks that, you know, their, their, their conditions were, were pretty serious by the time they reached us and got off the bus. We also understand that if this was Governor Abbott's intention to send everyone to New York, that's actually not what's happening. That the number of people that enter that bus in, let's say, Texas are not the same number of people that get off the buses here in New York. So people are getting off the buses all over the country. Um, and it's alarming because, you know, there, there's not necessarily a sense of what's happening to them. We are fielding phone calls now um, from all over the country where, you know, things were going on, people were separated from their families, or maybe they were fearful because they didn't know what was happening to them. Again, you know, what I'm describing is akin to human trafficking. And so then we're trying to reunite families that once people have gotten their variants and figured out where they are, then, you know, there are families that have been separated at the migrant detention centers that one bus went first, and it may have had the fathers as an example. And then now several days later, the mothers and children are being sent. So, there's so much complexity to the situation because families are not necessarily traveling together. People are being celebrated from their loved ones. They were separated in migrant detention. They get here. And once we receive them, as we're trying to get them shelter, there's more complexity in that because families are not necessarily being maintained together, depending on what type of documentation the families may or may not have. You know, a lot of documentation is taken from them in migrant detention, identifying documents, and that could include you know, marriage certificates or any type of partnership documentation. So it's super complex. Once they arrive here, you know, there are many moving parts to try to reunite families, get them together to where they had either intended to go or to receive them all here in New York if they intend to stay here. Um, but connecting them across different forms of transportation, including the buses, but not limited to the buses that you've heard about in the press. Um, and then in some cases, if they're, if the lodging that is being offered to them by the city has proven dangerous. You know, a number of people have been assaulted going into the shelter system here. And by a number, I mean dozens um, and have fled. Then part of what we are, you know, involved with now in a wider, you know, landscape is sanctuary, you know, coalition forming, just having sanctuary locations across the city um, for people where the, you know, shelters have not been the safest outcome for them. Or, you know, when we've had concerns about what was happening at intake, across multiple locations um, for city shelter systems, having just a safe respite space, for example, to do a medical check or to give food or for people to use a bathroom, because in many cases they have been traveling for days without access to that, without access to adequate food, shower facilities, cleaning, personal hygiene, and, you know, toiletry care. So <laughs> yeah, there's, there are a lot of moving parts to the, to the support and the care that we are, you know, the mutual aid network is part of providing. And we want to hear more about that network. We're going to ask more about it um, in a minute here, but I, I, I quickly curious, um, you know, you said that some people have gotten off the buses. I have heard of other accounts that someone asked to get off the bus and was not allowed to by the driver um, and f- felt unsafe like that. I mean, there, uh, um, you know, someone told reporter um, um, America Faggy, we are finally free we are coming in a bus that was like prison. Um, so I'm wondering if you know who is driving the buses. Is it a uh, is it a is it a third party company or you know? So the only thing I can say I know about 
certain buses is that they seem to have a variety of sources. So there are bus companies that seem to have to sign non-disclosures. And so they're not marked like they're not, there's not a company that's marked on them. They, the ones that show up that seem to be arriving uh, directly through some form of government intervention are not marked. They seem to be, you know, privately contracted and there's some sort of NDA involved that they're not disclosing anything else about who they are. Um, there are other buses that I would call like reunification buses where other groups have intervened, uh, mutual aid groups, sanctuary groups around the country uh, in certain locations. And as people are coming in to those places, so let's say they jump off a bus, then there may be folks that are reconvening with them wherever they jumped off the bus and then getting them a ticket so that they're directly coming to, you know, our people to reunite with their family if some you know members of their family have already reached New York. So I'd say that we've seen that with private carriers. I don't want to reveal their names, but they're private carriers that um, allies of ours, you know, allies of this work now nationwide are, are trying to make sure that if families have been separated, they're reuniting them and then just getting tickets on private, you know, buses to be able to, to so they would just you know, kind of blend in with any other bus that's arriving. So that's my mention, you know, there, there are different ways that people are arriving. Um, yeah. I mean, there, if you can move a person in a certain kind of way, that's how people are being moved here. So I just want to be clear that the scope is wider, even than what maybe has been illustrated so far. You know, this is a pretty profound network because of, you know, in particular, the family separation issue that happened at the migrant detention centers and who is and who is not sent on each bus. Right. And we're, we're speaking with Ariadna Phillips of the South Bronx Mutual Aid uh, here on 99.5 FM. Uh, Ariadna, uh, can you uh, describe a little bit more uh, how uh, South Bronx Mutual Aid is is joining in to uh, help uh, the migrants as they arrive and also the larger uh, grassroots networks uh, here in, in the city that are doing the work alongside you all. And also, can you talk a little bit about the, the work that has gone into uh, creating uh, both South Bronx Mutual Aid and other other groups like that? Uh, I mean, you can't uh, do something like you're doing now. Um, you can't just pull that out of the hat. How did that uh, come about? Sure. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll start from beginning to just things I want to clarify, because this has definitely come up in different spaces. Um, the name of our organization, South Bronx Mutual Aid, should not be used synonymously with all of the mutual aid collective efforts that are happening right now. You know, we are, we're one player in the game, but you know, the way that mutual aids tend to organize or mutual aid collective efforts are, it is a collective. And so you have a lot of different folks that are on the ground, you know, that are agreeing to organize under certain principles, right? Under certain community guidelines and boundaries, but it is autonomous. It's horizontal. So we're not, you know, I, I'm willing to speak, you know, kind of more publicly about what this is, but that, you know, should not in any way, shape or form erase the fact that this is a massive collective effort of many different um, entities, mutual aids, autonomous individuals, that participate in this and are just, you know, sort of agreeing to organize under certain operating styles um, horizontally and, you know, with, with certain abolitionist frameworks in the work that we're doing. Um, so that being said, let's say rewind. So the, the work that I would say I've done or sort of collectively been a part of that goes back several decades um, since I became a teacher. So, you know, that takes me back to graduating, you know, from college or maybe even during college or before, 
Um, but we didn't give a name to what it was that we were doing. It was more the mechanisms when, you know, I've heard people say, you know, oh, that's mutual aid or, oh, that's, you know, this Bronx mutual aid. I'm like, well, it's not trademarked guys. It's more of a, it's more of a practice, right? Of how you practice, how you're going to support community care. So the work of supporting community care where it's not meant to be hierarchical, you have the same people that are benefiting from certain work are the same people that are doing the labor themselves, right? So it's a collective effort where, You are benefiting from it, but you are also putting in the work. There's not like a top-down person, like an executive director or CEO or, you know, like you, you have coordination and you have a certain degree of, I guess, egalitarian behavior, right? So that's what I was doing, even with the the parents of my students and their older siblings from the time that I first began teaching is I don't want to be the one point that everybody comes to me and says, okay, can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? The idea is we are supporting each other to build up those skill sets so that we are helping ourselves and that we are helping each other and that we're organizing together for a greater good. So that's been going on, at least in my world for several decades, but I'd say when the pandemic hit, that's when a lot of the families that I was dialed into already in the South Bronx, um, you know, in education, you know, my phone was ringing off the hook of people just saying, I don't have food. We are not going to be able to pay our rent. We've lost all of our income. You know, a lot of the folks that I've taught and worked with, um, in organizing and teaching, et cetera, the, the bottom just fell out during the pandemic. You know, we hear this from all over, but it was truly bad in the South Bronx. Lots and lots of folks are immigrants. And so that's when I, I guess I could say there was a certain degree of giving a name and an identity to the work that was already happening uh, so that we could have uh, a rallying point of what this is and be able to share as a collective Right. What are these organizing principles? What are we agreeing to? And how are we building this out? And what are our, what are our focuses on? Right. Cause sometimes a collective may just have one focus. Like a mutually collective might just be on healthcare. And, you know, we went at everything. We went at housing. We went at, um, medical care actives. We went at food. We went at, you know, immigration and immigrant rights, like all of the above. If it's something that's going to affect you for your immediate survival, I can say that that was, Really the scope that South Bronx Mutual Aid was, was, was heading during the pandemic because so many other things shut down. So many other, you know, places that you might go for assistance just were, were not accessible. And that also led to us just being part of a wider mutual aid network, which is to your point, how any of this is even possible. Because at this point, I don't draw a division and say, oh, well, this is where South Bronx Mutual Aid starts and ends. And then this is everybody else. Like, no, we're all in it together, you know, and, and I'd say that the same folks that may be participating with us may be participating in additional collectives and we come together over causes, issues, you know, incidents. Like a lot of us have worked together previously in the community fridge world. A lot of us have worked together previously responding to the Twin Parks fire in the Bronx. And now we're working together, you know, in this massive ecosystem because of the massive scale of what's happening with the migrant buses. So I just want to say that is that, you know, I've heard this a few times where they're like, oh, you know, they're leading this or they're doing that. I'm like, we are just one cog in this massive wheel because it takes so many people and so many specialized networks, right, to address the medical needs, the housing needs, the legal needs, the intake needs, right? So we need people with backgrounds in social work, medical, legal, um, perhaps government experience, right? We need everybody, Um to be right. able to be supportive of, of this type of scale of effort, right? It's like, a, it's an entire resettlement, you know, operation happening with at this point, hundreds of people every week that are coming in and then hundreds of people that need additional follow-up support. And at this point also just organizing support so that they can self-organize and, and better 
support each you know round of people as they come in because that's also a sustainability issue and uh you know what we believe in we believe in the people that are affected are the people that should be making the decisions are the people that should be organizing and 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 all of that organizing takes constant dedication communication keeping up of relationships but obviously it's it's possible and and um i think we've we've heard quite a few reports that uh that after um a hell of a journey there is a lot of solidarity upon arrival which um you know that that I think that means something. So, uh, but you know, last time we spoke because Ariadna joined us last week and then we wanted to hear more about what's going on this week. Last time we spoke, you had, um, sort of, uh, spoken with the network coalition, you know, that is on the ground here and, and then that is, that is assisting, you know, um, uh, sort of later upon arrival. And, uh, you said that there was, you know, um, you were going to bring together tenants' rights demands and groups and, you know, the, the migrants who are arriving now and how they are tenants now at these shelters as well. Could you explain if that has been progressing any further? Any updates for us about that? Sure. I mean, I guess I can say that it is exceptionally important to us that the people that are impacted are also the voices that are being heard. You know, a lot of times this becomes very hierarchical and they want to look to one person to be the spokesperson or the agent of what's happening for whom. And so part of what has been, you know, involved in all of this is, yes, we have volunteers that are on the ground, but a lot of the, the asylum seekers, after we've engaged, after we've talked, it's like we're trying to provide an education around organizing to say, this needs to be you, right? Like this needs to be you in the shelters. This needs to be you if you guys flee the shelters. This needs to be you if you're in sanctuary spaces. This needs to be you collectively deciding what your demands are, right? Because it shouldn't come from us. It should come from the people that are directly impacted by these experiences. So I'd say to your point, that is for us, the inherent focus of all of this is that it's not just us saying, oh, this is what we think is best, right? That wouldn't be mutual aid. That wouldn't be organized around our principles. This is us going to the people directly affected and saying, want to be a part of this? Can we show you how to use these tools? Can we have you be a part of these conversations? Can you start handling some intake and onboarding and helping share out rights and helping share out with people what the things are that we've learned in this process so that you can spread word, you know, to others in the shelters and self-organize and self-determine what you think are the demands that you have. And that relates to housing, right? That really, you know, we, we had a press conference with a lot of uh, the folks that are our newest New Yorkers. And that's how it was very important, ensuring that it's not just us you know, speaking as activists or however you may see us, but people that are living this are showing up the second day, the third day after they've arrived going, yeah, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this because my brothers and sisters that are coming as refugees need to understand what's going on and need to hear everything that I've heard so that we're all taking care of each other, which to us, like, that's the whole point, right? Is that this is a, a collective effort, not just from our end, but it is developed with the people that are immediately impacted. And speaking of, uh, you know, efforts to help the migrants uh, from the other end of the political spectrum, uh, from the on high uh, at City Hall. Uh, how is the um, Adams administration and the city government uh, responding at this point? Are they doing any better than when we uh, last checked in? I heard that sigh. <laughs> I'll say this. I think that there are individuals that are doing their best. I think that there are individuals that 
believe in ensuring that the support that's needed for everybody that's arriving and for their safety and health and well-being, I do think that there are people that this is their priority. I think that there is a more complicated web of this that involves public relations, what story they want to put out there, um, the erasure and, you know, co-opting of the work of grassroots movements and mutual aids, trying to deflect whatever the reality is in favor of putting forth maybe a major big name nonprofit industrial complex type of partner. And so I'd say that it's a complicated answer. I can say that, that there has been, there have been plenty of words thrown back and forth that seem to uh, push towards removal of mutual aid support and, and intervention and organizing, but we're not going anywhere, right? Like we're, we're going to support, you know, our brothers and sisters that are refugees that are coming in regardless of what those opinions are, you know, and we're going to support for folks to, to self-organize as well. So there are plenty of things that get said and, you know, plenty of those things can turn out to be disappointing. But at the end of the day, I think many of us look at this as an opportunity for all New Yorkers that are unhoused, all New Yorkers that are unhoused, whether they're migrants or they've been in a social system, like there needs to be change. There's a very broken system at hand. You know, these human rights abuses did not just happen yesterday or the first day that migrant buses arrived. So I think that we're looking at this entire circumstance and going, you know, our interest is is not making this pretty. Our interest is in making, you know, safe, permanent housing available for all New Yorkers. Right. And um, in in our last 30 seconds here, Ariadna, just tell us quickly if you know how long this flow will continue uh, of people incoming and how people can stay updated or get involved if they want to. Sure. So there are a couple of places that people can follow. I'd say if you want to follow South Bronx Mutual Aid on Instagram, uh, NYC Ice Watch on Instagram. We also have organizers from Word Up Books, Mari um, Poesita, uh, that, you know, on Instagram. Find us. You'll see our posts. And there's a lot more information there to to get in contact with us and sign up and be a part of, of what we're doing. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Ariadna Phillips from South Bronx Mutual Aid and New York City Ice Watch. You can get in contact on Instagram at South Bronx Mutual Aid or NYC Ice Watch or at Mariposita. Thank you so much for joining us on WVAI 99.5 FM, and we look forward to speaking with you again. We're going to go to a short break, music break, and we'll be right back. Va por la calle llorando la 
You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, Ambigar Garian, here with my co-host, John Tarleton. Before we continue with our next segment, we need to take a moment to ask you, the lovely listeners of WBAI, to send us any money, any change you got. more. You could become a monthly sustainer, a WBAI buddy, which enjoys perks. You can sign up online at give2wbai.org or call the phone number 212-209-2950. That's give2wbai.org or call the number 212-209-2950. That's right. 212-209-2950. This is an especially important time to give because next week the station, it has to do uh, some legally required or this, the, the, our transmitter and antenna and all that at four times square. Uh, There's some legally mandated uh, maintenance that is going to be going on next week, which means WBAI will be off the air uh, from Monday to Friday next week from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. each day. That's seven hours of live programming that will not be able to happen. And and that means we'll lose a little bit of revenue. So you can help us in advance make up that loss of uh, revenue that will happen next week when we have to do uh, legally required uh, maintenance uh, uh, for our equipment at four times square. So 212-209-2950 or give number two WBAI.org. Next week, we're going to get a little bit of a glimpse of what it would be like to not have this station on the air because of the maintenance at four times square, seven hours a day uh, will be off the air. So please uh, support this station and keep in mind what it would be like to not have this station at all. You know, it's a, a, just a short maintenance break, but it's still going to be uh, hard uh, to be off the air for that time. Right. We we are an independent Radio station independent media, that means corporations and, and hedge funds are not controlling what we say. We can report on whatever we we wish and speak with who we wish. Uh, you can trust us for truth. And I think that puts us in a pretty unique place as a station. And I mean that as a station, obviously, the independent news hour and the independent strive to bring you great news all the time. But myself, when I'm driving around in my car, delivering newspapers or whatever it may be, I'm always listening to BAI. You know, so it's it's a super invaluable, invaluable network. I don't know where I would what I would listen to, if not otherwise. It's my first preset. I'm not lying. So please support me in supporting BAI and call 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number to WBAI.org. That's 212-209-2950 or online at give the number to WBAI.org. If you haven't done it in a while, do it this week because like John just said, we're going to need some extra help and uh, you'll miss us next week in the first seven hours of each day. But uh, that's enough for now. 212-209-2950. Give number to WBAI.org. John, take us into our final segment. Sure. Well, when we talk about the importance of in- independent media, can't help but think about an incident uh, happened this week. The illustrious New York Times uh, issued its endorsements in several hotly contested congressional races here in the New York area and in uh, New York districts 10, 12 and 17. And, and uh, uh, shockingly, all three of their endorsees uh, were uh, white males and uh, even worse, uh, two of those three 
are quite simply the most conservative candidates in the race uh, who are anti-Trump, but otherwise uh, pro-wealth protection, pro-cop and on down the line. Um, and it, in particular, there was a lot of uh, dismay of, about their endorsement in uh, New York 10, the new district uh, that covers lower Manhattan and parts of uh, Brooklyn, where our next guest, uh, Yuli New, is running, in that uh, they they only talked about two of the candidates, uh, uh, Dan Goldman, uh, the multimillionaire heir to the Levi Strauss fortune that they endorsed, and also uh, Mondaire Jones, but they didn't even bother to mention uh, two candidates who've been at or near the top of all the polls, and that's uh, Yuli New, and as well as um, uh, City Council Member Carlina Rivera, both women of color who have a track record of service in the in the district, and um, it's just uh, it was uh, really uh, such peak New York Times, and of course uh, Goldman has their endorsement, which uh, some people see as very important. And also, he's got millions of dollars of his own money to. Uh, flood the airwaves with uh, commercials uh, touting himself. And uh, anyway, our, our next guest, uh, Yuli New, does not have millions of dollars in her wallet to uh, spend on her uh, campaign. She's been elected three times to uh, the New York State Assembly uh, since uh, 2016 and is now uh, running for Congress with the endorsement of the Working Families Party, Jamani Williams, uh, several elected officials from the Democratic Socialists of America as well, and various uh, community groups. Uh, Yulene, Welcome to WBI Radio. Thank you so much for having me today, John. And Amba, it's nice to hear your voice. Yeah. So uh, for starters, can you just uh, give us your reaction uh, to the New York Times endorsement and and the way they uh, completely erased you, even though you've been either first or second in every poll uh, that's come out uh, since this race began? Well, I think that, you know, media erasure is nothing new to me, but I will say that, you know, I really, I really appreciate the coverage today and I'm really feeling energized because I'm seeing, you know, nearly a thousand volunteers on my campaign. We're making, um, you know, 200,000 plus phone calls, um, knocked, you know, over 35,000 doors. Um, we've, you know, done so many things to make sure that we actually have, um, you know, the ground game. And I think that we can't beat that. You can't buy that. And I, and I think that that's the part that's so important, right? Um, I love, you know, um, to, to, you know, be here because obviously this, uh, again, I'll just kind of reiterate a little bit about, you know, what you guys are all about, right? Um, this is independent media. This is, um, so important for us to be able to have, um, no corporate dollars, you know, supporting. And it's just, it's such a big deal because, you know, that's the kind of race that I'm also running. <laughs> and so people don't forget when, um, you know, looking at, you know, places to put your dollars, put it into WBAI and making sure that we also still have independent media and making sure that we have the support that we need to have, uh, have good, good, uh, good coverage when it comes to our different races. Um, I'm really proud of the coalition that's backing me in this race from the amazing Working Families Party to the New York City public advocate, Jumani Williams, to the Sunrise Movement in New York City. Um, we have so much support from young people, from our different communities. We have Brooklyn Indivisible. We have Cuff H. We have amazing folks that have been on the ground fighting every single day for the things that we need here in New York. Early voting has obviously already started, um, but I think that it's really important for folks to to get out the vote, right? Vote.nyc will tell everybody where their polling sites are, and then people can go to New for New York, N-I-O-U for New York to learn more, get involved, and donate. Um, I desperately need your help, obviously, um, because right now I am running against a... Uh, 
multi, a hundred multimillionaire. <laughs> um, and I think that it's really important that we have the funds, uh, to continue to finish our race. We have one more week left. It's exactly one more week left. And so I need your help. And I hope that folks will, will, uh, open up their wallets to both WBAI and to you, Lean Nip. <laughs> Absolutely. And so tell us, Yulene, a little bit about your background, how you came to be in politics and uh, what you like to do in politics. So a little bit about my background. I've actually uh, been working on the state level of politics for about 22 years now. It's kind of strange to think about. Um, but I started as a young intern and um, have worked um, on the state level, uh, except for a stint at the U.S. EPA um, to work on the Office of International Tribal Affairs to really talk about um, some of the climate issues that we've been facing. Um, but I think that it's really important for uh, folks to um, really understand like how to you know, be ready to be in Congress and be ready to legislate and be ready to push. And I think that I have demonstrated in my six years of being an elected for this district, 100% of my district is inside of this new district uh, 10. And I think that it's really important for me to be able to, you know, understand the policy that's, um, you know, helping and then harming our community, right? I think it's really important to know the things that are affecting our communities. Um, I can talk to you a little bit about the accomplishments that we've uh, made during this time that I've been an assembly member. Um, I'm really proud of what I've accomplished in Albany. I've fought and delivered for my constituents on public housing for one I led to push uh, I led the push to get our first uh, state funding for public housing uh, on the capital dollars end and now there's over a billion dollars in critical funding to fix our broken public housing that is making people sick and killing them I've been on the front lines in this community fighting the efforts to privatize our public housing um, and working with tenant organizations to protect our renters I think it's so important to make sure that we're protecting section 9 and funding section nine so i'm going to continue to do that when you know because every single time that i'm trying to get state dollars for capital uh you know fixes um in public housing they're telling me wow it's a federal issue and you got to go to the feds and so i'm hoping to be able to make sure that we fully well that could happen in about one week <laughs> I'm hoping we, I hope that we can get our federal dollars, um, to fully fund public housing here. And we also, you know, have to make sure that we are, um, fighting to increase our funding for our community organizations. Um, folks probably know that I secured about $30 million in dedicated funding for community organizations in the state to fight against, uh, anti-Asian hate and anti-Semitism. Um, and together, uh, I think that we have to raise our voices to get, you know, funding for our North communities, which is our naturally occurring retirement communities. I, help to not only fund it, then double the funding and then triple the funding. Um, we've uh, also um, been able to get settlement house funding. Um, the settlement house initiative program was uh, something that we've helped to fund for a very long time. And when people in our own party said it wasn't possible, we don't say, you know, <laughs> we don't say, okay, we just say um, why and how um, can we m make things happen? And I have obviously notoriously um, stood up uh, to Albany's culture of abuse and corruption and really made real change. So I hope that people will see that that's what we need in Congress and that, you know, we can have the political courage that we're fighting for now in this seat. Right. Can you elaborate a little bit more on why uh, you were so uh, aggressive uh, or, or just bold in taking on Governor Andrew Cuomo when very few people uh, in state government uh, would even uh, have thought to do that and uh, you were very outspoken. Of course, he later became uh, a pariah and had to resign. But 
long before that, the, the strong man of Albany uh, was uh, almost uh, untouchable. I mean, if you've been there for a day, you would know, right, that there was um, that that he was uh, seen as somebody who was untouchable in a lot of ways, um, like you were saying, John. And I think that, you know, we knew that um, if we wanted things to change, we couldn't accept the status quo and we couldn't just be go along to get along legislators. Um, so I was very firm um, even when it came to the campaign finance issues that were happening, right? Um, so the first time I think that we really clashed very hard was that we were trying to pass campaign finance reform on the state level. And it was something that I fought really, really hard for. And then I saw him doing a $25,000 a plate fundraiser um, that was literally during our budget season with his budget director, um, like basically holding court to hear what you know, these people who were paying the top dollar amounts. $25,000 a plate. I mean, that sounds like Dan Goldman money. <laughs> well, I just think that it's really important for people to know what was happening, right? And so when we stood up, um, my colleagues, uh, Alessandro Biaggi and I, um, and alongside uh, Senator Jessica Ramos, um, when we uh, stood up and really pointed out what was going on to folks um, and asked for uh, transparency and also asked to make sure that we pass campaign finance reform. What we got was, um, you know, and, and obviously we can't curse on the radio. So it was expletive nope. idiot. <laughs> expletive idiots is what we got, um, as a response from his spokesperson. We were, um, called those names. And so I think that it was, um, you know, important for us to, uh, touch that nerve because we're right. Right. We need to make sure that we take big money out of politics, that we actually, um, you know, fight for reform in Albany and um, that we actually get uh, the transparency and the accessibility to government that people deserve. And I think that, you know, uh, we shouldn't have uh, our government decided uh, and our rights decided by special interest groups. Um, and we see that now. Right. And so this is why, um, you know, when uh my colleague said that there was no way we could ever hold a man as powerful as Andrew Cuomo accountable for his misconduct. Um, we did. You know, my, my colleague said there was no chance we would ever get sexual harassment legislation to hold government officials to the same standards as anyone else. But not only was it by legislation, we passed it and we won. Um, I will never back down from a tough fight if it's the right fight for my constituents. And we need more of that courage in Congress um, because the GOP is coming for our rights now. Right. And, and speaking of that, we're going to go to a clip here of AOC, AOC speaking right after the Dobbs decision was released, overturning Roe versus Wade um, and calling on the Supreme Court to be expanded, which something many leading Democrats don't want to touch. There was brief um, speak of that at the end of the Trump um, presidential period. And, and, and Biden, you know, completely dropped the ball on that. So let's go to AOC here. Talking about a court of, with the majority of justices appointed by a party that has not won a popular presidential election more than once in 30 years. Ruling against the majority of Americans. We have a Senate that is controlled by minority rule. And we have a house suffering from the impacts of gerrymandering that amplifies and undermines our democracy. 
We are in a very dangerous moment, not just for women, not just for LGBT communities, not just for all of us, but we are in a dangerous moment in the world because this is not just about the right to choice. This is about rule of law and democracy. Right, that was AOC speaking right after the Dobbs decision was released, overturning Roe versus Wade. And we are here with Uline New, who is running for the 10th um, district in the U.S. House of Representatives, which encompasses parts of lower Manhattan, including Chinatown, down to Park Slope and Sunset Park. So uh, your response to, to that clip of AOC speaking and then in general, you're, you've taken this approach, as you just explained, um, you know, around uh, getting Cuomo out of office. So uh, would you continue to fight in that in that way, that outspoken way, if you were um, at the national level? I think that any time that we have, um, you know, an issue that hurts our people, we have to speak up. Um, I think that I've never hesitated and I don't think that we need to, you know, hesitate or blink at these things. And I think that, you know, what she said is absolutely right. We have a Democrat um, for president. We have Democrats uh, in the Senate that are supposed to be a Senate majority of Democrats. We have Democrats, uh, you know, in the majority in our House. And I think that, you know, we have this scenario where we have Democrats controlling both bodies and the presidency, and yet we still are not able to codify our rights, not able to protect our bodily autonomy, not able to um, pass gun laws. And I think that it's really important to note um, that we don't need just Democrats. We need the right Democrats. We need to make sure that we have the right Democrats to be able to have the political courage to lead um, with empathy and to understand what our people need and to fight um, continuously until we get um, to where people are protected. And I think that this is not a time for us to be wishy-washy in how we feel about abortion. This is not a time for us to take um, special interest dollars and have that impact our decision-making. I think that this is the time for us to walk our talk and to be sure to fight with all of our strength in order to be able to strategically um, help our people. One of the things that, you know, I think we, we must note is the fact that for 50 years now, this has been the plans. This is what AOC was talking about. For 50 years now, um, there has been strategy um, against us. And I think that for 50 years, we should have been strategizing about how to protect us. And we did not do that. And I think that it is important for us to note that and also not to let it continue because we don't need to keep on electing or um, to fight for or to, um, you know, only um, elect people who will only work to save their own seats. We need to fight for people who are going to save us, right? And, and to fight for us, right? And I think that saving your seat is not admirable. Saving your people is what your job is. And if you're not going to save your people, then you don't belong there. And I think that that's what we have to think about when we're strategizing, um, because we have to make sure that we are prioritizing um, our communities and making sure that what America needs and America wants is at the table. Um, and, it, you know, and I don't think that it is right now. Right. And, and uh, 
We also want to talk a little bit about uh, foreign policy since you're now running for uh, for national office. Uh, that will also be on your uh, menu if, if you make it to Congress. Uh, I mean, just for starters, I, I, how do you uh, perceive, I mean, the U.S.'s uh, role and position in the world? Uh, is it fair to describe the United States as an imperialist power like most other large, powerful countries? And, and, um, and if not, how, how do you see uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, relationship to the rest of the world? Well, I mean, I think we we definitely have certain history of imperialism and colonization. I mean, we've um, also, you know, colonized and not given equal rights, for example, to Puerto Rico. Um, I think that there is definitely history of um, certain colonization efforts. I think that, um, you know, we have to be very, um, you know, clear about... Is, is it entirely in the past? I don't think it's entirely in the past. I think that we are one of the great superpowers in in the uh, world. And I think that we have to acknowledge that. Right. Um, and also be very, um, you know, cognizant of, um, and of how we, uh, wield and, um, you know, also, uh, you know, take steps in our power. Right. And I think that, you know, it's important for our country to, um, you know, recognize, uh, where we are, like you're saying in the world, um, to be able to make sure that we're also, um, you know, making sure that we're promoting peace and humanitarian, um, you know, efforts rather than, uh, you know, I guess, um, harming anyone. And I think that that's, that should be our role. Um, it should be one of peacekeeping. And what would you like to focus on, right? Um, uh, everyone's assigned a committee. If they're in the Congress, uh, what kind of things would you like to promote? Yeah, so um, right now, currently, uh, I think that one of the biggest, um, you know, people know my committees <laughs> uh, when I'm in Albany, right? So um, I've always uh, focused a lot on um, banks, insurance companies, um, you know, uh, regulating um, for consumer protections, et cetera. So I think that it's really important that we have um you know, somebody who really can understand certain financial services and how to regulate them, um, predatory practices. You know, I actually was, uh, the person who, uh, when I was much younger, um, uh, in Washington state actually regulated the payday lending industry, um, and, uh, made sure, uh, in Washington state to, uh, certainly stop certain kinds of predatory lending, um, that was happening. Uh, but I think that, you know, obviously in New York, we have, uh, prohibition on there's, uh, we prohibit payday payday loans here. Uh, and that's awesome. It's, it's even better than the bill that I had to pass. Um, but I think that it's really, uh, always a fight to make sure to stop, um, you know, the creeping of like trying to get payday loans back into, um, into, uh, into New York, you know, and I think that it's really important for folks to, um, you know, know how redlining works, how to stop it. And, um, I think that, you know, it would be really great to be on, um, any of the committees where I can actually, uh, do a lot of, uh, good when it comes to, um, consumer protections or, um, on regulating, uh, certain harmful financial pra- practices. Right. And we have about one more minute here. And, and one thing I wanted to ask about, which is something you've really leaned into in your campaign, is that if elected, you would be uh, the first openly autistic person to serve in Congress. And uh, you've called your autism uh, your superpower. Uh, can you talk about uh, 
why why you see it that way and and uh, what uh, people should take away from your uh, experience with autism and and uh, and the way you've embraced it. I mean, I think that uh, I didn't know <laughs> that I would be the first openly autistic, uh, you know, congressional member if I was to win. Um, I didn't know that until uh, Newsweek covered it. And I'm sure that a lot of people have run. Um, but I uh, am very excited to uh, be able to have a chance to make history. I think that, um, you know, I think my diagnosis is something that um, I am now very... Um, you know, uh, open with, um, and think that it's, uh, it's important for us to destigmatize and to break stereotypes of, um, what, uh, you know, neurodiversity is and how it affects people. And, um, I think that we are also, um, you know, helping people to be more, um, open-minded about, you know, how, um, how we can lead in all different ways um, and your leadership style can look different and still be so effective and so um, powerful, you know, and I think for me, uh, you know, I call it my superpower because I tend to uh, have a ability to hyper-focus on um, certain policies and think a lot more big picture than a lot of people and look at cause and effect of different kinds of policies and issues. And I think that a lot of people um, really benefit from that kind of lens. And I think that because right. I also center disability justice and every right. accessibility in all of my policies, it really helps to also have that, you know, in, in how we, uh, how we legislate. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Yuli New, uh, congressional candidate in New York uh, Congressional District 10, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you so much for having me. And make sure that folks know to stop by and look at our website at newfornewyork.com. Thank you. Okay. All righty. Uh, so, uh, uh, Amba, oh, let's see. We're going to, we'll be back, uh, as I mentioned before, next week, uh, 5 to 7 p.m., election night special. Uh, thank you this evening for, uh, uh Reggie Johnson, our, uh, our board operator, also Ken Lopez for his contribution. Amba, what's our, uh, outro, uh, this evening? Summertime by Alvin Jones and Richard Davis on an incredible 1967 album, Heavy Sounds. Highly recommend. <laughs>